And welcome, everybody. This is Jeff Anderson. And this is Buck Green. And this is the Friday Reload Podcast for Modern Combat and Survival on November 13th, 2014. This is our chance to, for Buck and I to get together and talk about this week's podcast, the, the blog posts, and the general news, and kind of just chat about the things that affect you and give you the highlights for everything that we put into the blog this week. So, um, so lean back and get ready for our, our, our who gives a shit opinion on what's going on in the world. <laughs> um, you know, I would, I would call it the our weekly passive aggressive let's make fun of Jeff session. <laughs> yeah, that or you know, we just figured we get together and bitch and complain anyway. We may as well just record it and let everybody else listen to us bitch and complain. So. But uh, actually, there's always some good tips in as well. So if you didn't get to any of the blog posts this week or you missed a few or whatever, this is our chance to give you the Notes version of what you need to know so you get so you get some end-of-week tips that you can really put to use right away. So to start that out, um, Buck, you want to go ahead and start with the, the first blog post? Well, I'm all about uh, anytime we can hit someone in the face, I'm all about that. And the blog post that I liked right off the bat was, how to make your self-defense headbutt like slamming a cannonball into his face. And I liked it mostly from the imagery of the idea of like, hey, uh, Buck, why are you carrying a cannonball around? Well, you never know. You just never know. That's so, not a cannonball. I'm just happy to see you. <laughs> Actually, I know a guy online who makes uh, self-defense quote-unquote keychains. It's like a full-size pool cue ball, like a, like a a billiard ball that has a paracord wrap around it. Yeah. What you've got is essentially a bludgeon made out of a billiard ball with this really nice paracord lanyard on it to serve the handle. They're vicious. I have one made from a full-size ace ball. <laughs> and well, I've seen them without without the um, the cue ball also, you know, where it's like the monkey fist and it's like that's labeled as a weapon. Like, I, yeah, I hope, I, I hope when I'm... When I'm facing like a, a bunch of gangbangers in a parking lot who are trying to attack my Wi-Fi, I, I hope they're all armed with 550 cord monkey fists. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a heck of a themed gang. That's right out of the Warriors. I believe <laughs> the actual term for that, and you'll see it in some states' uh, anti-weapon legislation, is a slung shot. If you've ever looked at your state's penal code and seen the term slung shot and wondered what the hell that was. That refers to those weighted monkey fist type uh, bludgeon tools. Essentially, it's a it's an outgrowth of laws that target things like blackjacks and saps and so on. And they're they're more effective than you might think. But yes, I I too hope that if I'm ever braced by a pack of brigands, they're all armed with paracord monkey fists. Bring it, because... bring it. <laughs> anyway, we do. Um, I digress. So go ahead. Yeah. Well, the. The post, it features one of your, your military stories, and I enjoy those types of things where you talk about your friend John headbutting a, a, a typical barroom brawler type, you know, miscreant in the face. The headbutt is one of those techniques that I saw a comedian once years ago going, who decides who gets to win that? When I smash my head into your head, is it just that it's my idea so I come out ahead? And, of course, what most people don't realize is you're taking the hardest part of your skull and smashing it into the softest part of the other guy's head, which is his face. Um, And there's a right way and a wrong way to do a headbutt. Um, In the blog post, we describe tucking your chin and protecting your neck. 
uh, firmly cupping your hands behind the attacker's neck, which is an important part. If you just slam your head into his, uh, you know, he's naturally going to recoil from that. So you're not getting as much impact as if you brace his head and stop it from going anywhere. And then, of course, uh, you have to repeat. So it's a lather, rinse, repeat sort of a technique. Uh, some of the better descriptions I've seen of the headbutt describe sort of turtling your head up with your shoulders up around your neck so that your neck's not moving. And that's important. You're not, you don't want to give yourself a spinal injury while you're doing this. You want to protect your neck and use the, the bony shield that is your skull. Um, the, the headbutt can actually work in reverse too. If you just lower your head and let's say he punches you in the top of the skull, yes, that's going to be very unpleasant for you. But as long as he hits you in the top of the head, he's hitting that shield of bone uh, that is your skull. He's not hitting uh, anywhere that there's a nerve. It's not like the junction where your jaw meets your skull, which is a knockout button. If you manage to get him to punch you right in the skull bone, that's going to break his knuckles or at least do him some serious pain. Uh, you know, it's, it's, again, your head is, there's an important thing in there called your brain. So it's not like you should go out of your way to beat his knuckles with your brain. But <laughs> there are ways to, to make the headbutt and use your skull as, as an offensive one. And the word of the day, folks, is turkling. Yes, turkling. So anytime. No, no, turkling. Not turkling. Turkling. As in a turtle. What is it? You know, a turtle, that animal that oh, has a turtling. shell. Well, okay, the the word of the day is turtling. I don't I don't know what you thought turtling meant. I didn't know what turtling <laughs> meant either. But if you do hear the word turtling any time during the day, you're to headbutt the person closest to you. Just tell them well, it's the word. It's the MCS word of the day. Them sputting words. You know, that would make a fun game. Just pick a random word and tell the listeners. Whenever you hear this word, punch that guy in the face. Yeah. Or, or headbutt him, even better. I think that's called the you knockout know, like, game. Like, uh, let's, the word of the day is progress report. <laughs> hey, Steve, do you have those progress reports? Ow! <laughs> What'd you do that for? I don't know why I got fired. I Blame get podcasts and listening to <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the, uh, the next podcast that we had was actually our, um, I'm sorry, the next post that we had was actually our podcast. And this was my interview with, Author and gun expert, gunfighting expert Tony Walker, who was a was a real who was a real blast to to talk with, and it was on split second gunfighting tricks. He's the author of a book called How to Win a Gunfight and uh, The Half Second Advantage, and and this was really about uh, our found one of our foundational principles, which is when it comes to gunfighting, it's not seconds that count, it's split seconds. Like any, uh, and and I learned this even in martial arts. Like my the one, I think one of the first things my very first martial arts instructor it was a, a kung fu instructor in Schenectady, in New York, and he said, you know, essentially the first person to get in a punch is the one who wins the fight, like you know, eighty five percent of the time, because it immediately puts the other person on the defense, and once you own the offense, you you know you've got you've got the power. And the same thing goes with gunfighting. If you're the first person to get your weapon out and pulling trigger, it immediately triggers the other person a defensive response, which makes accuracy, you know, just sends it right out the window and, you know, if they even get to that point. So his whole thing is about different ways that you can get that split-second advantage where you can get to your gun. 
So a lot of what we talk about are different, uh, they're kind of sneaky tricks. You know, it's ways to fool the other person. Uh, it's uh, like, uh, for example, like being able to, to fake like a heart attack sort of a thing. And this is a situation where you might already have the disadvantage. So if somebody pulls a gun on you, like for a robbery, and you feel like this isn't something where you can just give them their, you know, you give them the wallet and they don't, you know, they're still like, okay, now come over here or whatever. You know, faking a heart attack sort of a thing can give you, you know, the movement. Like if you if you're moving in a way and they they, um, you know, so you're you're basically move. You basically even just the fact that you're moving allows you to get your hand to where your gun is as you're going down or something like that. And they're they're not associating you're going for a gun. They're trying to figure, out, oh my god, what do I do? You know, should I just run? What do I? What, you know, their plan has just been disrupted. So that's just one example. In fact. I'm not sure if I brought it up in the podcast, and I don't remember now, but I remember a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode, and it was um, where the, the main character was getting into a, an argument with a guy, and he faked a heart attack, and the guy freaked out and left, and uh, he, so he was like, you know, fight was avoided, and it's, and it's little tricks like that, but he has a bunch of really cool ones in our podcast, so uh, if you are a concealed carry owner, or even if you just use a weapon for home defense, uh, there's lots of really good tips in there for ways that you can gain that that offensive advantage in a gunfight. So go check that out. I, I think it's worth pointing out, though, that there are some people who, if they thought you were having a heart attack, would proceed to mercilessly beat you because they're like, hey, he's having a heart attack. Great. <laughs> well, just wait for them to give you mouth to mouth and then just stick your um, <laughs> your Glock right into their belly button. And... <laughs> And then you can claim that he was raping you, and that it was it was all it was all uh, justified. <laughs> so so apparently we're being assaulted by one of those weird good Samaritan. The good Samaritan. Uh, good. Hey, there's some good gangbangers out there. I mean, you know, they'll rob you, but it's not like they they're going to let you sit there and die with a heart hey, attack. Hey, I want to talk to you about this paracord monkey fist. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, uh, what's the next one we got? Well, this one was a particularly interesting one for me because I love anything that has to do with survival food or stockpiling survival food because that's so critical to just the concept of long-term survivalism. It was called One More Critical Thing to Hide in Your Home to Survive a Shelter-in-Place Crisis. And it, it talks about all the different ways that your food stockpile could either be destroyed or become useless or compromised. We talked about that in uh, previous podcasts about the ways that your stockpile could be compromised from the introduction of moisture or sunlight or, you know, you're keeping it at the wrong temperature. Um, but to me, the biggest, the biggest threat is always other people. So the post is mostly about building uh, a vertical survival garden and how you can get those vertical survival garden plans. The idea being that um, when I was a kid, my father was very much into gardening. We had an enormous garden. We had a double-sized lot, so we had a bigger yard than most people have. And he put in this southern plantation of a garden that I swear was 100 feet long by 50 feet wide. I mean, it, was, it was just gigantic. And that sort of thing will draw people who go, hey, look, there's food. Let's take it. So if you have a quote-unquote survival garden, that's good. You should be raising your own food. It's a good way to supplement your stockpiles, especially with healthy, fresh food. But people are going to see that in a crisis, and it's the first thing that's going to get attacked and taken. 
the vertical survival garden is a is a tower that allows you not only to grow a lot of food in a very small space, but it's relatively easily concealed. And the concept is scalable because you can build as many towers as you have room to uh, maintain and sustain. So I really like the idea of not only being able to grow my own survival food, but also being able to conceal it from the outside world so that it doesn't make you a target. And we've done entire shows on uh, like hydroponic survival gardens and doing stuff indoors so that it's even less detectable. I, I really, that's a topic I enjoy. And this particular post, probably my favorite of the week just because it was a new idea. Yeah, I, I mean, I love um, hydroponic gardening and everything. And these are uh, the vertical gardens are something that you often see at like the uh, the self reliance shows and like self reliance expo and things like that. Um, but you know, I'm always surprised because it's always one of the the booths that I hardly ever see anybody at. Like usually when you go to the self reliance shows, if it's anything to do with guns or if it's anything to do with like bug out bags, people are all over it. They're you know they're sifting through bags, they're going to find stuff, they're they're over at the the apple seed thing shooting BB guns at 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 targets and things like that. But um I always see this woman over in the corner at the vertical garden kiosk where just like nobody nobody seems to go over there. And um I, I just think a lot of people really need to to think about this more because because what I like about it is that it's 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 something you can you can benefit from now. You know, it's like it, these are vegetables that you can have now. So not only does it save you money, but you know if, if it if it ever comes down to I know people have you know there have been different marketing uh, things that I've seen out there like you know 2013 is the year for 32 dollar loaves of bread, you know. But we know we know that the economy is only going to get worse with the with the nonstop borrowing that we do. Eventually, it's going to give out on us, and so. You know, inflation is already happening. We've already seen increases. If you if you're the one that does the grocery shopping for your home, then you know that prices are steadily increasing. At the same time, that um, the actual amount that you get in a box is actually decreasing. So that's one of the hidden the hidden inflation factors. That a lot of people just don't notice. You know, the box. Have looks- you bought a gallon of milk recently? I I. Uh, uh, bleh. <laughs> I don't drink milk, so, by the, yeah. I bought a gallon of milk the other day, and it was, like, just under $5. And I'm like, I remember when this was two. Yeah, I remember when it was 99 cents for a gallon. Now I now I'm sound like an old part, but <laughs> I remember when milk was 99 cents a gallon. Well, yeah, and I hate, that's one of the reasons I derailed myself. I hate sounding like, when I was your age, everything was a nickel, and it was made from the bark off of trees, and we were grateful for what we had. You know, I hate sounding like that guy. But at the same time, like I, I was actually surprised. I'm like, wow, I don't remember milk being expensive. Yeah, but now you don't even have to be old to do that. As like, remember three years ago when milk was two dollars a gallon? <laughs> <laughs> now <Yeah>. it's five. <laughs> right. Like, remember when gas was a dollar and something instead of four? Like seven <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you know this, but that does bring up that this is something that is you don't have to worry about inflation with stuff, and and unlike canned goods, which you know you have to you have to resupply those, and that costs money to resupply those, and you and you want to rotate your stock, and it, you know it only lasts a certain amount of time. But like the vegetables are are going to be fresh; they're going to be much more nutritious as well. So like when you grow your own food, it's more nutritious than mass produced in you know, uh, pesticide laden 
foods that you're going to get at the local grocery store. So it's more nutritious. And I was surprised that I don't have a vertical garden with uh, with my garden, but it is something that I have a spot planned for it. And so I have to go through this as well. But it's that you can get 100 pounds of food into a four-foot garden area. You know, it's pretty amazing. And, I, and, and if you go to any of the Self-Reliance Expos and you see those, they're really, really cool. There is a link in that blog post where you can get the instructions, the blueprints on how to, on how to do that. And I highly recommend you do it because it's going to be, you can literally do it with stuff down from Home Depot and it really is not that hard to do. So, uh, you can get the blueprints from, from that blog post. It's pretty cool. And the last one that we're going to be going over, uh, this week is a life or death concealed carry mistake that could kill both you and your spouse. And this is a, uh, a tip that I got from a friend of mine who is a super high level bodyguard, Mike Gillette. And it was one of the things that a long time ago I hadn't really thought of, mainly because I didn't, I didn't get my concealed carry license until I moved to Texas. We didn't have it in, in Illinois where, where I was living before. And, and this was something that we have to think about when you are a concealed carry, uh, gun owner. It's like everything around, everything revolves around that around that gun. It's like where you, how you sit in the car, when you go into a restaurant, um, and when you're with your spouse. So how you, where you sit, how you stand, how you walk, all of that revolves around you being able to get to that gun. That kind of goes with our, the Tony Walker interview about the half second advantage. Like, are you pre-positioned? Are you, are you set up to be able to respond as quickly as possible? And our concealed carry, not our concealed carry, our Close Combat Shooting course at closecombatshooting.com focuses on this a lot. Like, even in the type of gun that you are carrying, how you're carrying it, uh, not just where you're carrying it on your body, but how you're actually, how how are you pre-staging the gun to be able to get a round off as quickly as possible. So we talk about some of the ways that you can do that in the Close Combat Shooting course, and this one is more about the, you know, interacting with your spouse. And so the situation that we talk about in there is if you are, if you're with your spouse, let's say you're coming back from a restaurant and you're holding hands, it's been a nice romantic evening, and all of a sudden you do have somebody that attacks you. If their whole, if your spouse is holding, first of all, if she's holding your gun hand, so let's say you're carrying on the right hand side and you're holding hands and you're, on, you're holding your right hand and her left hand, what, it, what tends to end up happening, and I'm not going to be gender specific with this, but your spouse may freeze. You know, if you're the one who's the protector of the family and you're carrying a gun, your spouse may freeze. And when they do that, they clinch down on your hand, maybe like hide behind you, dragging your arm behind you, you know, for, for protection. But there, it's, it's a natural, instinctive, adrenaline-fueled response that locks up your hand that would be going for a weapon. And that right there can take away any advantage you have. Forget a split second advantage. Take away any advantage you have. And all of a sudden now you're, you're a target. You're a sitting duck. So there are ways to avoid this, but, but it does require you thinking about them ahead of time. For example, um, number one, have a plan already worked out and rehearsed with your partner if possible. So if you were to be attacked, what, what are the instructions for, for your spouse? Have you talked about that beforehand? Because when an attack happens, that's not going to, you're not, that's not the time to work it out. And we've seen, 
I saw a funny image online. It was, what's the smallest caliber you would carry for self-defense? And it's a picture of a Beretta jet fire. And the stories of a guy who's like, oh, I was out with my girlfriend, and we were attacked by several men. Uh, but one shot to her kneecap was all it took from that Beretta jet fire. <laughs> it's my favorite gun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sorry, that's a little dark. It's a little well, dark. Well, what I was thinking was I've seen – I've seen videos and people have seen this, I'm sure, in action, but where a guy, the guy is attacked and the woman starts trying to fend off the attackers. You know, it's like, leave him alone, leave him alone, like you're going to be the protector. And what that does is it, it creates a problem for you, the protector, and that you now have two people that you need to be, be responsible for. You have to survive yourself and then hope that nothing happens to your, to your spouse or your girlfriend or something like that. And she could really get, you know, she could, she could really get hurt. I mean, I've seen, uh, I was just watching a video of a guy that was attacked, kind of like a knockout game sort of a thing by a gang of guys. And the girlfriend was trying to pull all the guys off of them and she got hit. You know, they, they, in the, in the, in the adrenaline of the fight, they don't really care and they might not care anyway. But, you know, when it's just happening, you got some girl scratching at your eyeballs, you know, an elbow or an arm or a fist you know, quickly takes, you know, saves your eyeballs. And so, um, so, so that can happen. So you need to have a plan worked out. And, you know, my plan is for them to be able to, if they can, to run to a safe location, just run and go get help. Don't even worry about me. You know, just, you need to, you need to take off and get out of there as quickly as possible. But that needs to be something that you work out ahead of time. The other thing is when you are walking in public, always hold with your, you know, your non-gun hand. So for me, I carry right side, so I always hold my wife's hand with my with my left hand, and and that way, even if she locks up and freezes, I still have my other hand. Which brings us to the last tip, which is have have a means to like be able to carry and have a means to draw with just one hand. And this is something that a lot of people don't even practice, but you've got to be able to. You don't you don't know if you're going to get. Let's say you're 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 ambushed with a baseball bat, and your opposite hand is you know is out of commission. You need to be able to draw with one hand to be able to get to your gun. Now, there are a couple ways to do this. Um, the the one that I was taught, I don't actually like. So this is one of the pressure testing things that we've done. So it's the it's the four-finger sweep where you come under the your outlying shirt, you come up with the four fingers, and then that frees your your garment from to to expose your your firearm, and then you come down and you get a grip on the handle. What we found with that was a lot of in, in pressure testing. What ended up happening a lot of times is you still had the, your hand, I'm sorry, you still had your shirt in the like the the webbing of your hand when you came down on your weapon. And when you go to pull out the weapon, it gets basically it gets snagged with the uh, with the handgun itself. So we prefer the thumb draw, which is basically to to lead with your thumb underneath your underneath your shirt. Uh, this is something we talk about in the close combat shooting course. Come up with a thumb underneath the shirt, and that frees your entire. So basically, your entire hand is against your body, and so when you come down, you don't have that the shirt in between your the webbing of your palm to get to to get to your um, to get to your firearm. So those are just some tips that you should use when you're carrying concealed out in public, especially when you're with a spouse or something like that. You know, there there used to be customs that were sort of built around that the idea that when a man and his lady were out. Um, you know, in the days when, when you carried a, a rapier or a small sword with you, 
she was always on the one side and you walked on one specific side of the road. And that was because that way, if you were set upon by brigands who may or may not have been carrying monkey fists, you, uh, you were able to draw your sword and defend yourself and her. And, uh, you know, some of those may be kind of romanticized down through the years, but they do have their roots in real traditions that were based on real crime problems. Well, even in the military, that's the way, that's the reason why you always walk to the left of, you know, somebody who is a, you know, like a um, superior to you. And it was, it was back from the medieval times of when, when you were the protector of the, the duke, the king or whatever, you needed to be able to draw your sword, which was typically carried on the left hand side and, you know, without slicing the person that you're protecting as you're drawing it out. So I remember reading that, uh, Soldiers with bullpup configuration rifles, where the magazine is behind the trigger guard and therefore where the shells eject is much more of a, or rather much less of an ambidextrous sort of proposition that soldiers with rifles of that type display a marked preference for one side of the street over the other because the the gun just isn't, uh, it's much more comfortable in one position than the other. Okay, so that's what the uh, that was on the blog this week. So now let's go ahead and we're going to go to that part of our broadcast, which is the what do you know? This is our opportunity for Buck and I to kind of independently scour the internet for things that we didn't know last week that we know this week, and then we get to sh- get a chance to share with you. So, so Buck, what did uh, what did you discover this week? Well, you know, before I got to the scouring of the internet, I had to get through the 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 web, the forest of uh, pop-ups demanding my money. There's this, it seems like everybody's got their hand out these days. And all of a sudden, every time I log into Facebook, there's this stupid thing I have to actually close out of at the top of the, the Facebook page where they're, first they were demanding to know if I voted. Ever since then, it's been raising money for Ebola. The other day I went to go onto Google and Google had a pop-up wanting to know if I could please give money for Ebola. Now, I'm not sure how a, the application of cash actually protects you from the Ebola. I'm not sure if you're wrapping yourself in the money or if you're supposed to breathe through a lot of 20s, and that will help you not get Ebola exactly. But everybody wants my money, and you know, these days where everything is all about uh, so many different ways to fund projects. Like crowdfunding is very much a... a, a popular thing now uh and it the reason it's popular is because it works um and it makes good sense if you think about it but i have contributed to campaigns myself uh just recently in a facebook group that i'm in the relative of one of the members uh died and they raised money for the funeral expenses by selling shirts that they they designed that had the logo of the facebook group and the idea was if we get enough of these shirts sold let's say 20 then everything is funded, and not only do they get their expenses, but you get your shirt. And everybody wins because you're getting a product, and I like that kind of a thing. I like the kind of thing that, you know, crowdfunding where there's a reason I'm going to enjoy contributing to this because I get something that I want, and also a goal is achieved. But this just mindlessly throwing money at things like Ebola, call me crazy. I would rather see our government do things like cut off planes from Ebola hot zone countries uh, than just collecting money for the sake of collecting money. I think 
in a lot of cases, donating money makes people feel like they're accomplishing something. And they don't really stop to think, well, where's that money going? What is that money accomplishing? And how does money help this problem? I know we all think that money alone helps a problem, but like here in New York State, we shovel an awful lot of money into the engine of education. We spend tons of money on our schools, and yet our children are stupid. And it's because the curriculum is at fault. It's not a question of money. It's how we teach them. And the same principle applies to a lot of fundraising. Just because you have money doesn't mean you're actually accomplishing anything towards a goal. Yeah, I mean, actually, my um, my, what do you know is right along the same lines as what you're listening. But but here's what struck me about the same thing, because I see it every time now I'm on Google, is, you know, don't worry. We've got this under control. You know, we went from it's, don't worry, it's one person. We've got them quarantined in Dallas. You know, now, and then the last report that we did on this was, don't worry, we have all 351 people in New York City on the, on the, uh, being quarantined and on the watch list. Don't worry, we've got it covered. And now we're at help fight Ebola on Google. Send a dollar. You know, it's, it's, what part of this is under control again? Now that we've got, you know, everybody is trying to, put money in to keep this this out and and my thing with it so the the thing this week was um was basically like this is a really good case study for what we can expect if slash when any sort of a pandemic hits the united states so look who's fighting ebola we're fighting ebola the united states is over in you know we sent three thousand troops overseas to help fight ebola so this is a perfect case study for what you can expect to see under a medical martial law scenario within the United States because we're using the U.S. response over in another country. But nobody's paying attention because it's not in our country. So what are they doing? Essentially, you know, since people are not, you know, they're, they're, they are most uh, able to infect others when they're showing symptoms. So what we're doing is we're going door to door or hut to hut or shanty to shanty in, you know, overseas to be able to look for people that are infected so that we can get them early. And then we're quarantining them. We're putting them, you know, we're erecting tents and cots and quarantine zones and things like that and watch areas so that they're not just running around the public infecting everybody out there. So uh, look at how this would happen here. We already know that the Fourth Amendment goes out the window if legally there it's seen that you your life could be in danger we saw this during the the boston bombing raids where people where law enforcement basically acted like everybody was a suspect by going door to door and for your own safety the bomber could be hiding somewhere and so the fourth amendment that requires them to have a warrant to enter your home was thrown out the window because that bomber could be in there so they force everybody out of the home now think about that for you. If you are in an area that has had, uh, is now affected by Ebola, so there's one case in your town because that person was visiting New York City and got into a cab and got the Ebolas and brought it back home with them. <laughs> and, and now it's your, your little town is infected. Now you've got 12 people on the watch list. Well, now the CDC can come in with jackbooted, you know, SWAT team members and go door to door to enter and see if anybody has, you know, we need to get this, we need to get this contained right away. So they just go in, 
start taking temperatures of everybody to see if anybody has a heightened temperature and needs to go on the into a watch tent somewhere. And meantime, when we talk about this, when they enter your home, if they see anything else in there, they're already in your home. So if they see that you are stockpiling food, if you have, you know, weapons lying around, whatever it is, you know, now you become a person of, of interest. And potentially, you know, it could go anywhere from there. But essentially, the Fourth Amendment does not apply when you're, when, you know, you, you are in, uh, in danger, so to speak. And so, I mean, that's something to really, really think about. You're not going to stand on your front porch with a, with a copy of the Constitution saying, you're not coming in, my constitutional rights. No. They can now legally Wait. just Am I being detained? Am I being detained? Yes, you are. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Yeah, so, so that, that scares the shit out of me, basically. It scares the living shit out of me. And it's, now Google is <laughs> trying to help stop it as well. And, you know, everybody in America is trying to, what, now donate money so we can help stop Ebola? Don't worry, we have it covered. So. Well, I officially vote that from now on, when someone contracts it, we say, oh, he done got the Ebolas now. He got the Ebolas. <laughs> He's got the Ebolas. I know Christian, Christian last week started like coughing like crazy and he was like sick for like three days and like, you just keep your ass at home. You got the Ebolas. So. You know, if, if Ebola does come to your door, my vote is, I, I bet it's going to be him. <laughs> Christian? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, those of you listening, Christian is our, is our tech samurai. He's the guy that does all of our technical stuff. And, uh, I don't know why that's funny to me, but I, I guarantee if, if we do get the Ebola, It'll be him. He done got the Ebolas. We'll miss him. <laughs> we'll miss him. <laughs> Hi, I'm from the CDC. Do you done got the Ebolas? <laughs> well, now there's a way to combat the Ebolas. Just send a dollar to Google. We don't know why. We don't know where it's going, but somehow that will help. We trust Thanks. Google. We trust Google more <laughs> than the government. <clears throat> I'm just going to start doing these commercials live from now on. <laughs> All right, well, that's everything we've got for this week, everyone. So uh, thanks so much for all of your support. Don't forget to go ahead and share our podcast with all your friends, family, and coworkers because they'd love to know what you're up to. And uh, just make sure you get help us get the word out there. We hit number one in the new and noteworthy in the, I, in the uh, iTunes podcast. And uh, we're really excited about that. Now we're trying to work our way up the, the regular charts. And uh, anyway, we need your help to do it. So please go ahead and share any of the the emails that you get, just forward it on over to friends, and um, especially on those Tuesdays when you get notification of the new podcast. So thanks so much for all your support. And until the next Modern Combat and Survival podcast and reload, this is Jeff Anderson. And this is Buck Got the Ebola's Green. <laughs> Saying train hard. Stay safe. And prepare now. Thanks, everyone. has been Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.